I'd like to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. Often in preparation for someone who is about to give their Christian testimony, they'll be told to concentrate on three phases of their life. Number one, what was their life like before Christ? You've probably heard this. Uh, number two, uh, what was the occasion of their receiving Christ? And then thirdly, what has the Lord done in your life after receiving Christ? That's a very common one, two, three type of format when someone is encouraged to give their testimony. What was my life like before Christ? How was I living? What was I doing? And then what was the occasion when Christ came into my life, when I committed my life to Christ? And then what has the Lord done after receiving Christ? Uh, what's my life been like? What changes have occurred? And frankly, that is almost precisely what the Apostle Paul does here in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. You follow along as I read. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we also once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Now, if you look at Ephesians chapter 2, you really see the first part of what I mentioned earlier, and that is what our lives were like before Christ. You can clearly see that in verses 1 to 3, which we'll cover tonight. And then you see the occasion for our redemption, our salvation, and that is in verses 4 and 5 and 6 and 7 and 8 and 9 where that's what God is explaining to us, instructing us and teaching us how Christ came into our lives, what occurred exactly when that did happen. And then what was our life like after Christ? That's verse 10. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is a wonderful three-point testimonial of a spiritual biography of every Christian. And that's what God wants us to learn, to know, to understand. And I want you to know that the controlling idea of this passage is in verses 4 and 5. But God made us alive together with Christ. That's the controlling idea. This is the middle part of our testimony. It's the best part too, isn't it? This is where... I can glory in the fact that God has brought new life into my soul, allowing me to finally breathe new gospel air for the first time in my life. Do you remember the creation account as given in Genesis 2-7? Listen to this. The Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. God's wind, His breath, He breathed into that lifeless form, that lifeless substance, and created a living being, Adam. And that's what has to happen to us spiritually, right? God has to breathe His regenerating breath, His power, into our dead souls so that we can come to life spiritually. 
And similarly, from that spiritual standpoint, when we look at Ephesians 2.1, it says we were dead in trespasses and sins. Our bodies, our minds, from a spiritual vantage point, are lifeless. We're unable to respond to any spiritual stimuli whatsoever. It's like a dead corpse. You can stick it with a pen as many times as you want, and there will be no response whatsoever. And yet God, according to verses 4 and 5, made us alive together with Christ. He breathed spiritual life into our breathless nostrils, and we were resurrected from our dead condition. That's what the Bible teaches. And we became spiritually living souls. I'm resuscitated spiritually when Jesus saved me through His death on the cross. And He did so because otherwise I would be totally unable to breathe spiritually on my own due to my inability to force my own spiritual lungs to expand and contract, giving me the ability to breathe and live. What would it be like to go through the awful experience, the harrowing experience of being literally trapped in a situation where you couldn't breathe? I couldn't imagine that, could you? Not being able to breathe the breath of life, not being able to have the capacity to reach out to anyone for help. Under the title, 911's Deadly Flaw, lack of location data. Listen to the terrible experience of Chanel Anderson of last December. Just this morning, USA Today posted an article that says the following. Chilling. As water filled her sinking SUV, Chanel Anderson did what anybody would do. She tried the doors. They wouldn't budge. So she dialed 911 on her cell phone, telling the operator exactly where she was. Anderson, 31, was delivering newspapers near Atlanta about 4 a.m. that day in late December, so she knew the cross streets, even the zip code. She repeated her, her location over and over, but it didn't help. Because Anderson's call was routed through the nearest cell phone tower to a neighboring county's 911 system, the dispatcher couldn't find the streets on her maps. Worse yet, the system couldn't get a fix on the cell phone's location before the call ended. In the agonizing final seconds of the call, Anderson's words are muffled by the sounds of pond water. The dispatcher asks for the address again, then utters, I lost her. It took 20 minutes for rescuers to get to Anderson and pull the 31-year-old suburban Atlanta woman from her car, just barely alive. She died a week and a half later in the hospital. Her 911 call is one of millions that fail to give police, fire, and ambulance dispatchers a quick fix on location, a technology shortfall that can leave callers like Anderson in grave danger. The article goes on to say, the review of 911 call records, including data for even large states and many additional cities, shows, for example, in California, more than half of cell phone calls didn't transmit location to 911 over a two-year period from 2011 to 2013, and it's getting worse. Last year, about 12.4 million calls, or 63% of California's cell phone calls to 911, did not share location. Among the worst places, unimaginably, Silicon Valley. In December 2012, precise location was shared in just 10% to 37% of the area's emergency calls, depending on the wireless carrier. The multiple problems with Chanel Anderson's plight were as follows. The delay in finding Chanel resulted from a combination of lingering problems involving cell phone calls to 911. First, as her car sank in Cherokee County, Anderson's phone connected through a tower in nearby Fulton County. 
She was talking to a 911 dispatcher in the wrong town. The call center's computer maps didn't show the streets, Anderson kept repeating. It took minutes and a call to another county for emergency teams to realize what was happening, delaying firefighters' response. But most important, 911 never received location data from her cell phone before the line went dead. There are times when it doesn't come up at all, said Carl Hall, chief of technology at Alpharetta's public safety department. Every day we receive calls where we get a cell tower address and that's it. When rescuers did arrive, they spotted the SUV's still burning headlights underwater. A firefighter dived in and fished Anderson from the car. Medics restarted her heart, but comatose, she never recovered. If the phone had automatically routed to the correct jurisdiction, this very well may have had a different outcome, Hall said. And then the article said something that really jolted me. It is now easier than ever for victims to reach 911, but harder than ever for responders to reach them. Harder than ever for respondents to reach those who are desperately needy. Far more are those who are needy than the respondents are able to respond. It occurred to me that when I especially read the opening of this article and the horrible dilemma of this woman's final minutes of conscious life and then her subsequent death and all the surrounding circumstances with that 911 call, I saw, at least in my own mind, the tragic, eerie picture of what's truly going on in the unseen spiritual world of lost humanity. It's as though we're about to drown and we're pursuing all the wrong connections and all the wrong locations. And we're about to die. You see, that's the fate of all lost men and women of this world. Because they're living their lives as they please. And those who are at the same time in spiritual distress, spiritually dead in trespasses and sins, according to the Apostle Paul, are reaching out to everything and everyone except the right connection and with the right location. They have no capacity to breathe God's spiritual air because they refuse to do things God's way. Now, I'm not trying to capitalize on the tragedy of a young woman's sudden death. Wouldn't do that at all. And I sincerely hope that she knew the Lord Jesus Christ. But that seemed to me to be a very apt picture of what sinful humanity is doing. Having more victims than ever reaching out to someone or somewhere, but harder than ever, it seems, to make a connection or at least be in the right location. It's a connection problem, to be sure. And in the spiritual realm, God is right there, perfectly seeing us in our temporal and then our eternal condition, but we're not seeing Him. We're reaching out to everyone but God. And that's the way Paul starts this three-part spiritual biography of every Christian. Everyone who knows the Lord. He starts right here in verses 1 to 3 to describe for us what is the connection and the location problem. In our lost state, we're not connected to God spiritually and we're not located in the right place where from our line of sight, the help of 911 is right there, immediate. Surely someone's going to come. Surely they'll be here before the flood waters completely allow my head to be submerged. 
Let's look tonight at the connection and the location problem. What is the state, the condition of those who don't know Christ? What, what was our spiritual biography before we met Christ? Number one, number one, from verses one and the first part of verse two, the spiritually dead follow the world. The spiritually dead follow the world. Look again with me at what Paul says in verses 1 and the first part of verse 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world. These Ephesians Paul describes in their pre-Christian position as spiritually dead. Now, immediately we have to qualify that. We have to define that. Because we're not talking about people who are dead in the literal sense. We're not talking about that illustration that I gave in the most literal sense in which Paul's using it, because the way he's using it is a metaphor for spiritual death. It doesn't mean that a non-Christian is unable to think or to reason. That's not what he's saying. It means rather that unbelievers are unable to apprehend spiritual truth because they are spiritually undiscerning. That's the idea. Their, their mental, their spiritual faculties are impaired because of a comprehensive sinfulness. You may have heard of the phrase total depravity or complete sinfulness. It doesn't mean that someone is as bad at all points as they possibly could be. That's not what that means. What that means is that every part of their being, their, their mind, their life, their conscience, their choices, uh, their thinking, their rationale, their conscience is shot through and through by sin's effects. That's what Paul is talking about here. In fact, turning your Bibles to Romans chapter 5, and we'll do a little tracing through, and I'll show you what this concept of spiritual deadness looks like. Now, not all of these passages, for instance, like Romans chapter 5, will describe everything exactly the same way, but they will describe the totality of the matter. Romans 5, beginning in verse 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now that's a mouthful. But Paul is saying there that when Adam sinned, he plunged the whole human race into sin, and through that sin death reigned, and death spread to all men because it said, all men sinned. They were in the loins of Adam, and they sinned, and therefore they were completely sinful. Verse 17, if because of one man's trespass, that's, that's Adam's trespass, using that very same word that's in our text, trespasses, death reigned through that one man, Adam, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. He's setting up, as it were, two heads of the race, the Adamic race, the fall of mankind, the sinfulness of mankind, death reigning in that race, and then the race of redeemed individuals. That's the Christ race, and they're receiving righteousness, which leads to eternal life through Jesus Christ. Man is sinful because when Adam fell, he took the whole human race with him and they fell in him. You say, explain that to me. I wasn't even there. I wasn't even born. Explain that to me. I cannot. I cannot. Other than to say, this is what the Bible teaches, when Adam as the representative head of the race sinned, we sinned with him and in him because we were in his loins. That's what it says. That's what the Bible teaches. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2. This gets more to the point about our own lack of spiritual discernment. That's the way I defined that spiritual deadness a moment ago, a lack of the ability to discern truth. 
It's not as though unbelievers can't reason, they can't think, they can't articulate. Some of them are very intelligent. Some of them appear to have great wisdom, but it isn't spiritual. It isn't spiritual wisdom. It may be intellectual, it may be uh, knowledge and facts about the world to some degree, but it isn't the spiritual wisdom of God. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. Now, we have received not the spirit of the world, but Paul says the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God, and we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. If you're spiritual, you have the capacity to understand spiritual things. You're able to discern things spiritual. But if you're not, if you're a natural person as opposed to a spiritual person, a Christian, then you cannot discern things spiritually. In fact, that's what he goes on to say in verse 14. The natural person, the non-Christian, the unbeliever, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person, contrastingly, judges all things, but himself is judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we, Christians, have the mind of Christ. Unbelievers, unsaved people, they don't have the mind of Christ. They don't understand spiritual things. They don't understand or discern spiritual realities. Christians do. In fact, in that parallel epistle to Ephesians in Colossians chapter 2, verse 13, Paul tells us very, very clearly, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. The deadness in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Unbelievers cannot understand spiritual realities because they're dead. They're dead. And Paul says, you were these Gentiles who were spiritually dead because of a total life orientation toward trespasses and sins. And notice what he says. He says, it is these sins in which you once walked. Walked is a peripateo, a step-by-step behavioral pattern of life. It's not just that some unbeliever occasionally stumbles into sin. No, their life is shot through fully and completely with sin. It may not be that they're as bad as they could possibly be at all points, but their mind is corroded as the natural man with natural things. And they walk that way, the step-by-step pattern of their life. That's what they do. That's who they are. Look at chapter 5 of Ephesians. It's, It's who they are. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. You were in the dark. You didn't know what you were doing. You had no capacity to discern, verse 10, what is pleasing to the Lord. Don't take any part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Anything exposed to the light ought to become visible. Don't walk in darkness, walk in the light. And if you're a part of the light, you can expose things. If you're a part of the darkness, you're going to stumble and you're going to fall. He even says in chapter 4, verse 17, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. That's not a pretty picture, is it? Not pretty at all. And then, as if he weren't through telling us the sad condition of the unsaved heart, he adds, following the course of this world. Following the course of this world. Need I say much about the world in its sinful condition? Not, not the world of humanity as though you're talking generically. We're talking when he says following the course of this world, the world of sinful evil, the world in its evil system. Remember what Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3? Men love darkness rather than the light because their deeds are what? 
evil. They're evil. First John 2. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. For the things in the world, that's not of the Father, but that's from the world. It's the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. That's what's in the world. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Don't let the world conform you to its mold, Paul says. The evil condition of the world. Now you might say to me, but I thought your title tonight was The Immeasurable Riches of God's Grace. Well, look at verses 4 and 5 of Ephesians 2. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love which with, with which He loves us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Aren't those beautiful words? And I want you to capture those two phrases in your mind. Rich in mercy, great in love. Rich in mercy, great in love. That's, that's our God. Do you know of this rich mercy and the great love of our God and Father and the Lord Jesus Christ? I was so impacted this week when I thought of that term, His great love with which He loves us. And then I read this in one of the studies that some of our men are going through. D.L. Moody is quoted in Alexander Strzok's book, Leading with Love. This is what it says. Dwight L. Moody, the Billy Graham of the 19th century, tells of his life-changing encounter with the doctrine of love. It began when Henry Morehouse, a 27-year-old British evangelist, preached at Moody's church for a week. To everyone's surprise, Morehouse preached seven sermons in a row on John 3.16. Now that might be a challenge for any preacher, including myself. Seven sermons in a row on one verse? What are you going to say after the third or fourth one? To prove that God so loved the world, he preached on the love of God from Genesis to Revelation. Moody's son records his father's description of the impact of Morehouse's preaching. For six nights he had preached on this one text. The seventh night came and he went into the pulpit. Every eye was upon him. He said, Beloved friends, I've been hunting all day for a new text, but I cannot find anything so good as the old one. So we will go back to the third chapter of John in the 16th verse. And he preached the seventh sermon from those wonderful words, God so loved the world. I remember the end of that sermon, Moody says. My friends, said Morehouse, for a whole week I've been trying to tell you how much God loves you. But I cannot do it with this poor stammering tongue. If I could borrow Jacob's ladder and climb up to heaven and ask Gabriel, who stands in the presence of the Almighty, to tell me how much the uh, love the Father has for the world, all he could say would be, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Unable to hold back the tears as Morehouse preached on the love of God and sending his own son to die for sinners, Moody confessed, I never knew up to that time that God loves us so much. This heart of mine began to thaw out. I could not keep back the tears. It was like news from a far country. I just drank it in. So did the congregation. I tell you there is one thing that draws above everything else in the world, and that is love. As a result of Morehouse's influence, Moody began to study the doctrine of love. This changed his life and his preaching. He later said, I took up that word love, and I do not know how many weeks I spent in studying the passages in which it occurs, till at last I could not help loving people. I had been feeding on love so long that I was anxious to do everybody good I came in contact with. I got full of it. It ran out of my fingers. You take up the subject of love in the Bible. You will get so full of it that all you have got to do is open your lips and a flood of the love of God flows out upon the meeting. There is no use trying to do church work without love. 
A doctor, a lawyer may do good work without love, but God's work cannot be done without love. Yes, it is true that we're spiritually dead in trespasses and sins following the course of this world. That's our spiritual biography. But God, but God, according to His rich mercy and His great love with which He loves us, made us alive together with Christ. Spiritual dead people do follow the world. Secondly, the spiritually disobedient follow Satan. They not only follow the course of this world, they follow Satan. Look at the latter part of verse 2. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Sins shivers down your spine, doesn't it? To know that Satan himself, for the unsaved, is their ruler, their king, their despot. Another translation, by the way, has this verse, under the control of the ruler of the realm of the air. The air is that sense of the unseen forces that are around us. And Satan is the ruler. You know, in the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Satan is called the ruler of the demons. He's their king of kings and lord of lords. And in John's gospel, three times, he's called the ruler of of this world. Jesus calls him that, the ruler of this world. And in fact, look back at chapter 1 of Ephesians, verse 21. You remember that prayer where Paul says, I want you to know that Christ's rule is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Satan is the prince of the power of the air. And that's a reference to to Satan and his leadership and his demons, the demonic forces. And Paul will even add in chapter 6, verse 12, this description of the evil empire of Satan. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, I don't know about you, but that, that sin's fear to the human heart unless you realize as a Christian that greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world, right? I mean, to, to speak of a being like Satan who is the one to whom ascribed by the Holy Spirit in the written text of Holy Scripture that he is the cosmic power over this present darkness He's the head of spiritual forces in the heavenly places. That's what he is. He's God's arch enemy who seeks to thwart all of God's righteous plans if he could. Of course he cannot, but he does his, he does his most dastardly deeds as though he could. And he primarily, you might ask me, you primarily, you ask me, where does he primarily work? And I I've often gotten this question from people. Well, does he hang out in the bars and the strip clubs and places like that? And my answer is no, not primarily because he already has them where he wants them, right? What does he do primarily? What he does primarily is that he invades churches, if he can, especially evangelical ones, and works to destroy unity in the fellowship. That's what he does. Innuendo, backbiting. Uh, gossip. You know, even the, the hiss in gossip speaks of Satan. Gossip. That's the forked tongue of the arch enemy. And what else does he do? He invades other places, other religions especially, and pervades false doctrine in their midst. He tries to make people believe that he is speaking truth. You remember in 1 Timothy 4, it says that he uses these doctrines of demons through hypocritical liars, foisting his plan of the doctrine 
of Christ, but it's masquerading as that when it is not that at all. And that's what Satan does. That's who he is. That's his, that's his M.O. So he goes in, and he goes into a liberal mainline church denominations, and he gets them to believe that sin isn't as serious as it is, and Christ is not the biggest, best answer than he is. That's what he does. And he works to destroy unity in the church in the real church, in the evangelical church, in the Bible-believing church. If he can't get us to be swayed in our doctrinal convictions, then what he'll do through the back door is try to destroy us in our unity through any means at his disposal. And he's very powerful. In fact, so powerful. Look at what Paul adds here. The Spirit... That's Satan, the spirit, and and his demonic hosts, and their lies, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That's why we say the spiritually disobedient follow Satan. The spiritually dead follow the world. The spiritually disobedient, likewise, follow Satan. They're one and the same. They're in the same camp, speaking about one person, all unsaved persons. They're spiritually dead. They follow the world. They're spiritually disobedient. They follow Satan. They're sons of disobedience. It's like what Jesus said to those religious leaders. You are of your father whom? The devil. That's, that's, that's your father. That's your spiritual lineage. And everybody who is birthed from that are sons of disobedience. They're the spiritual offspring of disobedience. Not a pretty picture at all. Not at all. And, and it's hard. It's hard to work against that. It's hard to, to contend with that. Because he's cunning. He's a schemer. And you say, well, you said a moment ago that you know Satan works to promote false doctrine in, in churches that don't have the spiritual discernment of, of any capacity to contend with him, yes. And you said that he sometimes will try his best to destroy the unity of the fellowship of a local church that does try to teach right doctrine and love each other. Yes, that's absolutely right. And he would be successful in all of those ways and so many more if we are ignorant of his schemes. And that's why Paul said in 2 Corinthians 2, even when he was talking to a church and he was talking to a church about something in their church, the Corinthians, and he was saying, you've been unforgiving, you've been, you've been dealing with a man who has sought to repent of his sin, he has manifested the fruit of that repentance, and now you should rather forgive him, and here's what you're doing. You're standing off from him, you're trying to punish him, and he says, sufficient is the infliction of the pain of the majority. Sufficient is that. Lay off. Back off. You should rather forgive him. You should rather throw the repentant a spiritual party. Instead, you're, you're aloof from the truly repentant. And then he says, don't be that way because if you are, you're not being carefully discerning about the schemes of Satan. Ah, there you have it. We're not ignorant of his schemes, he says. Well, I assume that maybe there are some people in churches or maybe some churches themselves who are ignorant of his schemes because they have an unforgiving spirit. And they do stand aloof from the truly repentant. And they aren't loving them. After the sufficient discipline of the majority and the person repents, receive him, love him, throw a party for him or her because Satan will drive a wedge into the fellowship of unforgiveness and a lack of love. That's just one example. You say, well, the capacity to love, the desire to forgive, uh, the the eagerness to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, like he'll say later to the Ephesians, that's difficult, that's hard. Yes, it is. And for the spiritually disobedient, it's impossible. It's impossible. 
They're going to be unforgiving. They're going to be unloving. Why? Because their focus is on themselves. They're self-centered. Their, their whole life orientation is what they can get out of it. They're, they're good and not yours. They're receiving what they want while at the same time stepping on your neck. That's the spiritually disobedient. Those are the sons of such action, such life, such patterns. But, but, look at verses 4 and 5 again. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loves us, even when we were dead in that very condition of being spiritually disobedient, He made us alive together with Christ. Thirdly and finally tonight, the spiritually depraved follow their own desires. Verse 3, among whom, notice he doesn't say now you, he says we. He includes himself and his sort of apostolic band, his associates. Among whom we, and maybe Paul is again thinking of his own spiritual biography, his own testimony of what he was, remember? Before that Damascus Road experience, killing Christians, trying to get them to blaspheme, trying to throw them in prison. So now maybe he includes himself in his own spiritual testimony among whom we all once lived in the passions of our own flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now if this doesn't fill out the ugliness of who we were outside of Christ, I don't know what does. The spiritually depraved follow their own passions, Paul says. Why? Why do they do it? Because it's the natural response of their hearts. It's who they are. It's by nature who they are. To, to sin for an unbeliever is the most natural thing to do because it's part of their very nature to do so. I mean, I've been in counseling situations where maybe a a wife, a, a Christian lady, a, a, a valiant lady for truth is so frustrated by living with an unsaved husband and she says, why does he do this? Why does he say this? Why does he live this way? And I've often said, because it's as natural for him to do what he's doing as for you to do what you're doing. It's who he is. It's a part of his nature. It's not right. It's not good. It's not best. But it's who he is because it's so natural to him. The, the flesh. This is the flesh we're talking about. The flesh is, is at enmity with God, right? Turn over to Galatians chapter 5 and you'll see this just to the left of Ephesians, maybe just a page in your Bible. Chapter 5, look at verse 17. For the desires of the flesh, this life orientation of you concentrating on yourself, are against the Spirit the Holy Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other. Look at verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Here they are. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. And he says, he warns them, I warn you as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Why? Because the spiritually depraved pursue their own desires. This is what they pursue. This is who they are. Now, they, they will dress up things. They won't say, oh, by the way, I'm just insanely jealous. No. They'll cover that over with what looks like some virtuous idea or act but down underneath the surface, it's jealousy nonetheless. It's jealousy the same. And yet, what is the fruit of the Spirit? Verse 22, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That's why Paul says in Romans 8, flesh against the Spirit, Spirit against the flesh. If you don't have the Spirit of God, you're none of His. 
Because if you have the Spirit of God, you'll be warring against even the remaining sin of your heart. You've been loosed from it. You've been freed from it because of Christ. And every vestige of it, you want to mortify. You want to kill. All unbelievers, listen, all unbelievers, regardless of whether or not we're talking about Jews or Gentiles, live in the passions of their flesh. And look at what Paul says here in Ephesians 1.3. They carry out the desires, the evil desires of their body and mind. That's comprehensive. The immaterial part, the material part, the body and the mind. And they are by nature children of their father, the devil, deserving the full wrath of Almighty God. It is not a pretty spiritual picture of the biography of any unsaved person, is it? But, but God... Verses 4 and 5, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loves us, notice that present tense, loves us even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. He brought life out of the dead one. You could translate it like that. He brought life from the dead. So that now, when God takes his regenerating pinprick and he sticks us, that dead man comes alive like Lazarus out of the tomb. Lazarus, come forth. And I'm sure the skeptic would have been saying right outside that tomb, ha! Is he serious? He's been dead for four days. No one's coming out of that tomb. And then they see this man with the grave clothes wrapped around him hopping right out of there. Because, like an illustration of spiritual regeneration, Jesus took a dead man and said, Listen to me. And he had ears to hear. And he said, Alive! And he came alive. That's true of what happened to you and me, right? If you know Christ, I was dead. Trespasses, sins, I was was spiritually dark and dead following the course of the world. I was spiritually disobedient. I was one of the sons of my father, the devil. And I was spiritually depraved. I was following the course of my own desires, my own flesh, the flesh of the body and the mind working in concert together for evil purposes. And I was by nature, by very constitution, a child of wrath. But God. But God. And I would add, only God. Only God could raise us up from the dead. Is that your hope? Is that your belief? Is that your confidence? Is that your conviction? Do you know that to be true of your own heart? I conclude. Remember what I said at the beginning? There was a connection problem with the 911. Oh, you say no, connected right with 911. Yes, without any fruit, without any success whatsoever. And there was a location problem in the wrong city. Didn't know the streets. Didn't have the map. That's what we are. That's what we do. We've got a connection problem because we don't connect with the right person. And we've got a location problem. We're in the wrong sphere. Green Bay Police Chief Thomas Molitor wrote FCC Secretary Marlene Dortch in December lobbying for fast movement on the issue, saying dispatchers and callers face enough stress during a 911 call, but that public safety teams can't provide a solution without a location, which they have with less frequency. An estimated 10,000 people each year would be saved, this is the article, this is how it ends, would be saved with accurate location standards from indoor cell phone calls. That's what they think the solution is. And from the spiritual dimension, if you and I would be saved, 
Here's the accurate location to be in Christ. That's the location. That's the sphere. That's the place for which if you and I are in trouble, we can call upon our Heavenly Father. We can connect with Him. And He will say, are you in the right location? And our answer is, yes, Lord. I'm in Christ. And that, my friends, takes us from the spiritual autobiography of your life and mine to the grand and glorious connection with the Father through the regenerating power of the Spirit to allow us in our location to be in Christ Jesus. Amen and amen. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would seal these truths to our hearts. We don't want to have a connection problem. At least not connecting if we are connecting with the wrong person, with the wrong solution, with the wrong idea, with the wrong philosophy, with the wrong theology. We don't want to have a, a connection problem and a technology problem of location because it will send us to hell. If we're spiritually dead and disobedient and depraved, following the world, the devil, and the flesh, then we're certainly doomed. We're submerged in water with no way to breathe. Oh, Father, thank You for making us alive, for rescuing us out of that breathless condition. through Your rich mercy and Your great love. May we rejoice even in our singing together and in our fellowship because of this rich mercy and great love. In Jesus' name.